Good day and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate audio cast of the newsletter. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be looking at volume 12, letters 4, 6, and 8. Let's first start with some free thoughts. Sometimes I forget that I've aged. My head and my heart seem to have played this cruel trick on me, deceiving me with the false illusion of youth by greeting the world every day through the idealistic, mischievous eyes of a rebellious child finding happiness and appreciation in the most basic and simple things. It was written by David Grohl. You know, I can't tell you how many times I felt the pangs of this age truth. It's so interesting when you look at these realities. To me, do your best and don't worry about the rest. Teach this to your kids every day and life will be good. All right, let's move on to the newsletter itself. So if you hadn't had a chance to, uh, in the in the podcast, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Peter Rowe. It was a fantastic conversation. We sat down and discussed chronic fatigue syndrome as well as long COVID. And it's a really wide-ranging conversation looking at disease characteristics, uh, what we know in the science of the mechanisms of why people are getting long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome, and then ultimately the treatment. So if you're interested in that, go to Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music and pull up uh, episode uh, with Dr. Peter Rowe. should be number 14. All right. This week, we're talking about letting go. Letting go is one of those tricky things to say because most of us really don't even understand half the time what letting go is. What are we trying to let go of? Do we need to let go? Are we just living our days as we should? When I think of the words letting go, I conjure up thoughts of past losses. Whether it's a cat or a dog that passed away, friends from a stage of life, past hurts, lost human loved ones, failed endeavors, and so much more, we all have loss and have or should have let go of that pain and suffering that holds us back from our growth. Letting go can also be as simple as relinquishing the desire for today's plans when something unexpected requires your attention. It can also be very complicated as a release of hurt of a trauma or a loss. However, letting go is just that. It's letting go. We let it go. So let it go and be free. I remember the hyped up reality of high school. Four years of incredibly deep and formative relationships. In the inevitable reality of one summer, these years of growth end into a new reality of work or college, depending on your aligned path. However, the memories and feelings remain in you like a life force of future renewals. However, you soon realize that this is mostly not to be. Your new world is different with new characters and experiences. The past is strong but diminishing as new feelings and memories supplant the old. You are consciously and unconsciously letting go. This is the way of things in almost all cases, and that is a good thing. But what happens if you hold too tightly to the past? You hold on to a grandiose version of yourself, or worse, a shameful version of yourself, or an anger-based relationship experience, or a feeling not being good enough. What you are doing, in effect, is becoming a stagnant force, a rock not moving or growing. The new world that you exist in must change and adapt to the new characters and experiences that flux through you lest you struggle with what could have been. Even when the players remain the same, the story must evolve. I think of examples of friendships that did not serve or frankly caused harm. To hold a level of pain and hurt will only sully future relationships with fear and skepticism around repeated patterns. Old hurts drive depressive feelings of what could have been or what haunts you. If thoughts do create, you will recreate the pain. 
you will draw towards yourself that which was a learning experience that did not sink in. Life is about new opportunities with new actors and new norms. This is a fact if you let it. To be free is to let the past go no matter how ugly, hard, painful, or dysfunctional. Think of yourself as a caterpillar shedding your cocoon each time, becoming a prettier and more grounded butterfly. I recently watched the documentary slash movie The Alpinist. It's the story of the life of Marc-Andre Leclerc, a young and some would say obsessed alpine mountain climber. The documentary on Netflix is excellent. You soon realize that Marc has a gift. He can let go of everything. He exists to climb in love. He loves everything that is around him in the moment, whether it's Brett, his girlfriend, or the local people he meets on the mountain that he is scaling. There is amazing beauty to his simplicity. This is not to say he's a simple person, far from it. He's as complex as they come. But he's found out that the true joy of a mission, a passion, and a love, he lets go of everything every day in every way. He starts fresh with each experience. He truly lives and loves with full spirit. I was a bit jealous of his passion and singular happiness and focus when I first watched the show. I yearn a bit for that wanton freedom of being on one with nature, being out there, just existing and climbing and skiing and doing all of those things. Alas, I let that go as it doesn't serve me. I am me and I am changing constantly based on my path. I'm grateful for why I am rest today. Philosophically, Jesus Christ taught us to turn the other cheek in the face of aggression and frustration, to not hold grudges and anger, to let go. The Stoics discussed at length the benefit of not letting anything in the past corrupt your view of the present or future. Buddha was espousing the release of all attachment and desire to find true happiness. There's no lack of knowledge from those that have tried to educate us on that which does not serve over time. I like a quote by Dr. Seuss. Life is too short to wake up in the morning with regrets. So love the people who treat you right, forgive the ones who don't, and believe everything happens for a reason. If you get a chance, take it. If it changes your life, let it. Nobody said it'd be easy. They just promised it'd be worth it. Here's to letting go. From now on, practice letting go, and always teach those around you to do the same, especially your children. P.S. I wrote, wrote here, Every time I release this newsletter, I realize that I'm letting it out and go to a lot of people. When I first started writing, I used to worry about people's reactions and feelings towards my thoughts and ideals. Somewhere along the way, I stopped worrying and just did the best I could each and every week. I offer that same gift. Do your best and don't worry about the rest. Let your kids know this. Postscript number two. I am still a massive work in progress of letting go, as my brother-in-law Graham will remind me repeatedly. It is good to find those in your life that feel the truth of life and are willing to call you out on your BS. I have a few of them, and I am very grateful. They're helping me on this journey. P.S. number three. Remember that we are all in this together. Life is challenging. Life is beautiful. When you fall down, stand up. Just always hug your kids. All right. Section two. Back in a COVID time capsule. I went back through some of my COVID newsletters and found one from April 2020. I wrote, Flattening the curve has occurred effectively in most parts of this country. That is a good thing because we still have serious supply chain issues with protective gear for healthcare workers. 
I have friends that work for companies that produce PPE, materials, protective equipment, and the stories that I'm hearing as to why are frustrating and a clear sign that supply chain needs the United States-based form here, out from here on out. That being said, where do we go from here? We have discussed this on and off for the last few weeks. However, the issue that is arising heavily right now is the economic damage that is occurring to most vulnerable Americans. Poverty is the number one risk factor for negative health outcomes year over year, and we are slipping in that direction rapidly. The reality that keeping the country hunkered down for a prolonged period of time is fraught with peril on the poverty spectrum and thus the health spectrum. Children are not being significantly affected by the virus. However, they still suffer mightily if poverty grows exponentially. This is phase two of how we must see this pandemic despite the frustrating reality that we, that as we loosen restrictions, more individuals will get exposed and some will unfortunately die. Dr. David Katz is a brilliant thinker and he's provided us with some of the most logical and forward-thinking non-emotional plans for the future. He is discussing is nonpartisan and science-centric, which is exactly what we need, end quote. Now, we look back on these and many other discussions that occurred in the public sphere in these pages over the past two years in the newsletter and realize that we had many things wrong and many things right. Herd immunity never turned out to be possible, but places like Sweden had it right, while much of the politically driven decisions here were failure for our children. We stressed our children out with lockdowns, social isolation, poverty-based disproportionate educational failures, and so much more. Many people were screaming for their children to receive preferential treatment with the calculus of the pandemic response only to see our ideas drowned out by the policymakers and massive fear-based thinking. However, the key was that we never took our eye off the science and the correct message of what it is best for the most vulnerable, our children. I listened with interest when Dr. Peter Tia praised living in Texas, where his children remained in a mask-optional environment that were known to be very low risk. I remember writing a scathing review of the teachers' unions' approach to the pandemic where they put themselves above the children. I remember being frustrated by this reality when all the physicians and nurses were back at work every day despite the risk. Ultimately, I wasn't in their shoes and could not judge, so I buried my frustration and let it go. Much of this pandemic is a study of what to never do again as it relates to children. Maybe at the end of the day, that is exactly what we should do and take away from this pandemic what not to do next time. I share Dr. Atiyah's frustration when the CDC messages as I can't stand what many of the thoughts and ideas they've put out there are not based in science. You know, messaging should be scientific and for the best of the country. Don't think that happened this time. I believe the CDC, unfortunately, has shot themselves in the foot for the future with mistrust. I mean, for a physician to mistrust the CDC you know that's not a good thing. I fear that this will be a great loss for this country. Trust is easily lost and hard to regain. The hallowed halls of medicine need unbiased leaders who do not owe the policymakers anything. They must act in the best, interest of the, the best interest of the patient, and that's it. I hope that whenever I stop writing about COVID, you feel that I provided a service of unbiased, scientifically-based information that helped you weed through the noise of the pandemic. I take great humility as the writer um, that I hope you enjoy this as the reader. Section three, forgiveness. Forgiveness is unfortunately underutilized cure for the heartache and pain. 
We all at some point in life will suffer from an intentional or unintentional wrong that leaves us wounded, angry, and potentially vengeful. This triad of dangerous feelings will usually worsen our sense of self if we act upon them or hold them close. How many movies have we seen or books read that show the lead character suffering from anger held too tightly? An acute or worse, yet chronic unremitting sense of anger and wounding will engage our sympathetic nervous system's fight or flight mode to protect us from further harm. In an effort to save ourselves, we are likely to run away from the stressor or attempt to compartmentalize it, a.k.a. wall it off. How often does this work? Rarely. In the Daily Stoic newsletter, the author states, quote, The great C.S. Lewis observed that we all find forgiveness to be a lovely idea, right up until we have someone to forgive. It's true. Forgiveness is one of those virtues that's easy to talk about but incredibly hard to practice, particularly, particularly when we are hurt or when we have been seriously wronged. Yet, isn't that the sort of the point? Forgiveness wouldn't be that impressive It wouldn't be that meaningful if it came naturally. It could be so easily tossed off, end quote. That statement sums up everything very succinctly. I've lived long enough now to know that most great things are not easily attained. Hard work and the act of giving away is the route to happiness and self-esteem. How do we model and teach our children to forgive, love, and heal? Do we ask them to sit and meditate on the pain to release it? Do we tell them to suck it up, buttercup? Do we show them that we are never vulnerable as mom and dad? Are we perfect? When someone cuts us off in traffic, do we cuss and verbally castigate them in front of our child? I remember a few years ago when I was crossing the street to the gym and a woman in her Toyota Camry came whipping around the corner nearly running me over. She then proceeds to yell at her window at me for being in the road. She takes off and parks off in the distance. Little did she know that I was in a great mood that day and nowhere to be. I ran full speed in her direction and stood behind her car with my phone, took a picture of her license plate. She got out and yelled at me for taking a picture. I politely said that I needed to take the picture to report her behavior just in case she has a habit. If not, no biggie. She needed a paper trail based on what she did. Speaking calmly, which further unnerved her, I said that I could have been a mother with a child crossing the street. Boom. Behavior shift. She was clearly a mother or a grandmother. They hit it closer to home. She goes on to say that I'm very sorry, I'm late for work, I don't normally do this. I went on to say that I'm over it and I'm grateful that she sees the risk in her behavior. Not knowing whether this action or lack of action was the right answer, but it felt right. I never lost a moment of sleep or any frustration that day. Forgiveness was the key. Now you might say that was very easy and little to forgive. You're right, I would agree. However, every little forgiveness makes bigger forgiveness events later, easier to achieve, becomes a habit. I'm always amazed at how these topics seem to hit me all at once. Not only did I receive the Daily Stoic email the day of this writing, but during my morning run, my buddies talked about how Nick Saban, the current University of Alabama football coach, would give his players second chances to right the ship, with a great many success stories to show for it. Think about that. He could just boot them off the team. He has plenty of great players. No moral adult guidance needed. Send these kids out into the world more broken. To what end? Instead, forgiveness leads to growth and betterment, keeps them in the fold, keeps them growing, keeps them learning, keeps them improving. So what is forgiveness? When looking for definitions of forgiveness, I found this one. Psychologists generally define forgiveness as conscious, deliberate, 
decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you, regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting, and this is key. You are not forgetting, not condoning, not excusing the offense. You are merely acknowledging the event and letting go of your resentment and your vengeance. That is the key. The Bible is littered with forgiveness ideology. Christ taught over and over and over and over again. Turn the other cheek. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. Don't we all want to be forgiven? Who among us has not made a mistake? Who among us has not harmed another? I can guarantee you that my life would have been very difficult if my parents had not loved and forgiven my stupidity over time, as there was plenty of it. I go out of my way to make sure that my children and my patients know that they are loved and forgiven regardless. Consequences still exist and should for poor quality behavior, but love and support should not be taken away. This is the critical piece. To effectively change a behavior, a person must be able to recognize the problem, feel motivated to change, and have a support system in place to follow through on that change. I think that our world could do well with a lot more love and forgiveness. Hate, anger, wounding never serve a person's well-being. These feelings just grow, fester, and destroy. Think of recent excellent movies like I Can Only Imagine. The young man, Bart Millard, is in a nightmare family environment with every negative bullet coming his way as an emotional, physical abuse from those that should love and protect him. To trust after that would be very difficult. Yet, faith, friends, and his pain sublimed into music produces the ultimate forgiveness and release that not only heals that young man, but also his abusive and broken father. This is personified forgiveness. If you have not watched that movie, I would really encourage you. It's excellent. Make that your homework this week. Watch it, reflect on it, discuss it with your age-appropriate kids. Other great movies I think of in this theme are Goodwill Hunting, Pay It Forward, Invictus, Wonder, Dead Man Walking. A little bit more difficult for young kids, but a really good movie. To forgive is to heal and live stronger. Remember that forgiveness is actually more about you than the other. All right, that's a wrap-up of letter number four. Letter number six, free thoughts. Noted, keeping your eye on the middle of the road is very important to resist mental stress in this hyperpolarized world. Try to teach your kids to avoid the constant news media cycle of negativity by helping filter the noise for them. Aim for positive stories more often than negative ones. You don't have to be a Pollyanna like me, but try to keep them balanced towards the middle. We are all very stressed, and social media, the news complex, all the garbage doesn't need to be thrown on top of the pile. All right. So this week, we're looking into fructose a little bit more. I'm going to get into a much, much deeper dive of this um, in the next couple weeks as I've tried to take Dr. Rick Johnson's excellent book and condense it down into an audio soundbite. Very difficult, but I'm working on it. But just suffice it to say that let's just let's just discuss um, a little bit more about fructose metabolism, how it's hurting humans. You know, we're all paying more attention to the effects of lifestyle choices on our health 
especially now that we understand what COVID-19 is. One of the primary lifestyle choices that's hurting us is the overconsumption of refined carbohydrates or sugars, in particular this molecule we call fructose. Fructose is a natural sugar found in fruit, honey, and root vegetables. Historically, humans consumed fructose in these natural whole foods and did so moderately. However, since the 1970s, there's been a major rise in fructose consumption, primarily as beverages. Think of sweetened drinks like fruit juices, soda, energy drinks, sports drinks, sweet tea, all the above. The advent of government-subsidized high-fructose corn syrup has provided companies a very cheap source of processed sugar to sweeten beverages and processed foods. Cheap and sweet, not a good combination for humans. Fructose is much sweeter than glucose, the other half of the table, sugar disaccharide, making it the driver of most sweet foods taste. From 2010 National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, we observed data that Americans consumed around 24 grams of fructose per day in 1970. So in reference, 24 grams is about six packets of table sugar that you think of when you're cutting a packet of sugar and putting it in your tea or coffee. However, that number has gone to 55 grams per day, and adolescents take the prize at 70 grams a day. That's 17 packets of sugar per day. It's a bolus of calories. But that's not the whole story. Why does it matter? Because it's driving metabolic disease in most Americans, costing us all countless healthcare dollars and lost health days of life. One major factor in the metabolic syndrome obesity epidemic is the constant excessive exposure to fructose, as well as the disaccharide sucrose, which is fructose and glucose combined. We call that table sugar. How does the body see fructose? The liver is the location for the metabolism of most of the fructose, whereas glucose is metabolized everywhere, especially the muscles and the brain. The majority of the ingested fructose goes to the liver, where it's metabolized to fat without the control of the hormone insulin and the feedback negative regulation. This is not good. The body likes to control the metabolic system through feedback loops that shut off when calorie, sugar, fat contents are sufficient. Fructose, when it does get to the liver, directly turns on genes that increase fat deposition. Why would this be? Let us look at gorillas. They gorge on fruit during the natural fruit season in order to fall, in, in the fall, excuse me, in order to produce fat for the long winter. This is sort of like the polar bear gorging on seals in the fall to survive the winter. Nature has a plan. Where does it go wrong? Humans and our choices. We take seasonal fruit and give access to it to ourselves all year long. We make juice and demand that children get juice or milk in school when water is the best choice. We make high fructose corn syrup cheap and accessible all year long in soda and beverages. Oops, we have produced a mismatch of our genetically perceived environment and the environment we find ourselves in. We have a genetically predisposed seasonal fruit metabolism style with fructose exposure flooding us all year long. Problem. Part of the science is that fructose also causes a decrease in an enzyme called lipoprotein lipase which keeps fat particles in the blood circulation. Fructose also has the effect of increasing the transcription of genes that promote glucose production in the liver and thus more glucose release. The end result of all of this is excess blood sugar and the development of insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, mellitus, and leptin resistance, which makes us hungry. 
The science gets much deeper, but we're going to get into that in that next podcast. So fructose used to be useful during periods of feast and famine. What used to be helpful is now dangerous with constant exposure, but nature always has a plan. And this is not the end of the story. Far from it. We're going to look at the new emerging data at the risk of preeclampsia and abnormal pregnancies from fructose in the future. There's solid emerging evidence that the diet is a main driver of abnormalities driving poor outcomes in pregnancy. Fructose is also a well-known driver of reactive oxygen species, which are formed in the mitochondria during the burning of fructose, glucose, fats, other things. It's a byproduct of our energy production. These reactive oxygen species are chemically reactive molecules that have an unpaired electron. A good friend, Dr. Nagy, has a great analogy for this. Imagine a single guy being invited to a couple's party. He doesn't care whom he hooks up with as long as he does. In the cellular world, the unpaired electron will attack any cell and cause stress and damage, as if the single guy goes after your wife. Cells suffer DNA and protein dysfunction, which in turn causes the cell to not perform properly. In other words, excessive fructose intake promotes the production of detrimental chemicals in the bloodstream that hurt our bodies at the cellular level. This is another root cause of disease. We will get deeper into the space in the coming weeks, but there is now good evidence that fructose ingested or made in the liver in response to excess blood glucose, hypoxia, which is low oxygen, excess uric acid, dehydration, or excess alcohol intake, excess salt intake, all these things can drive our system to go into survival mode, whereby the body turns on metabolic pathways that preferentially store fat in the liver and periphery, elevate blood pressure, turn on hunger-foraging brain signals, and generally push you towards a survival activity type. Until we get to the really deep dive in fructose, the first thing that I would do right now is reduce and preferentially eliminate sugar-laden beverages, including juices, for kids especially. Get soda, sports drinks out of the house. Drink mostly water or unsweetened teas. Second, reduce how fast the sugar is absorbed by adding fiber to your diet. The best fiber sources are sweet potatoes, vegetables, beans, whole berries, and other whole foods. Adding fiber to every meal is a brilliant idea to reduce blood sugar spikes and reduce how much of that sugar load, the fructose load, ends up at your liver. Third, exercise more to burn sugar so that it can't be used to make fat. This also turns on more glucose transporters to push glucose into the muscle, which decreases the amount that the liver sees, thus decreasing fructose production via this polyol pathway. Fourth, increase the intake of bright colored vegetables and fruits, which contain natural chemicals to reduce the burden of reactive oxygen species. Spices, dark chocolate, nuts, and berries are all very high on the ORAC scale, which is an antioxidant strength scale. Fifth, read labels and avoid foods completely if they have high fructose corn syrup in them. Sixth, drink lots of water when you eat anything salty to reduce the sodium concentration in the blood, which decreases this polyol pathway activation and thus fructose production with all of its downstream effects. For further understanding, I would encourage you to view Dr. Lustig's webinar. It's uh, found in the newsletter, volume 12, letter number six at the bottom of section one. Okay, section two, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. These are 
and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis are two completely avoidable diseases of childhood. When I was in medical school in the early 90s, the primary cause of fatty liver disease in adults was alcohol. Over the past 20 years, however, obesity epidemic has skyrocketed and the associated fatty liver disease now is called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Unfortunately, this is no longer an adult-only phenomenon. Akin to type 2 diabetes mellitus, children are now suffering increasing rates of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It is now the most common liver disorder in children. Incidence is now greater than 33% for obese boys and 25% for obese girls. According to the CDC, there are 13.7 million obese children in the United States. That that equates to roughly 4 million children and adolescents with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Completely preventable national tragedy. That could be 4 million kids and counting who may need liver transplants down the road. Studies have noted a fourfold increased risk in this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in Hispanic children compared to non-Hispanic children. White and Asian children also have relatively high prevalence compared to African-American children. Other studies note gender differences with higher percentages of males compared to females. This likely is all related to host genetics. What is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? NAFLD, or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, is defined as greater than 5% of liver cells having fat deposition by biopsy or radiographic evidence without any inflammation. In about a fifth of these non-alcoholic fatty liver disease patients, inflammation will set in leading to liver cell damage and subsequently fibrosis and scarring. Unchecked, this fat deposition will continue in more liver cells causing increasing cellular damage and ultimately leading to cirrhosis or liver cancer and ultimately liver death and human death. The etiology is believed to be a combination of many different metabolic triggers, including standard American diet, its effects on the intestinal microbiome, a sedentary lifestyle all combined in the face of dysfunctional genetics. Overconsumption of fructose sugar is a form of sweetened beverages and processed foods is leading contributor to this disease. Quote, fructose consumption has been associated with NAFLD severity in both cross-sectional interventional studies. There is evidence that fructose consumption was independently associated with NASH in obese children and NAFLD. It is also showed that fructose intake was independently linked to hyperuricemia. An intervention with a low-fructose diet in pediatric NAFLD demonstrated that fructose intake correlated strongly with plasma ALT, AST, and insulin resistance independent of weight loss. Furthermore, a recent study showed that a nine-day-long fructose restriction led to significantly decreased liver fat, visceral fat, and hepatic de novo lipogenesis in children. End quote. That came to us from Hartman et al. 2018. As fructose drives up the metabolite uric acid in the liver, the inflammation that follows is mediated by the NLRP3 inflammasome, which induces local damage and destroys the powerhouse of the liver cells known as the mitochondria. The associated intestinal microbiome dysbiosis releases immune-activating lipopolysaccharides into the systemic blood circulation and induces a depletion of liver cell protective choline. Excess systemic glucose and free fatty acids independently drive more immune dysregulation, further increasing mitochondrial reactive oxygen species, inducing apoptosis and cell death. Clinically, NAFLD and NASH are relatively asymptomatic for decades. Over prolonged periods of disease, the patient may start to feel chronically fatigued and have nonspecific abdominal pain. 
Diagnostic clues begin with liver enzyme tests called an ALT or alanine aminotransferase and lipid tests like triglycerides and lipoproteins. If significantly elevated, an ultrasound can give you more concrete evidence of disease. The only definitive proof is through a liver biopsy. This is a devastating silent killer if left unchecked. Obviously, we want to catch this disease well before these symptoms develop. If you or your child suffers from obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, or metabolic syndrome, we highly encourage you to have your liver tested via screening blood result. Treatment, though, is simple. One, avoid simple refined sugars and flours in all of their forms. Absolutely no fructose or high fructose corn syrup based foods or beverages. Two, reduce the consumption of fruits, especially as juice or smoothies, until the liver and your weight are stabilized. Then adding back whole fruit smoothies is a good idea. Increase daily exercise to 60 minutes. Start slow and work your way up to these 60 minutes. Walking as a family is a great start. Number four, minimize screen time as it encourages overeating and sedentary behaviors. Number five, talk to your doctor about taking vitamin E oil, omega-3 fatty acids, and choline to help protect your liver cells from damage. Okay, section three. From a recent study, quote, multiple sclerosis is a chronic inflammatory demyelinating disease of the central nervous system of unknown etiology. We tested the hypothesis that MS is caused by Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV, in a cohort comprising of more than 10 million young adults on active duty in the U.S. military, 955 of whom were diagnosed with MS during the period of service. Risk of MS increased 32-fold after infection with EBV, but was not increased after infection with other viruses, including the similarly transmitted cytomegalovirus. Serum levels of neurofilament light chain and biomarker of neuroaxonal degeneration increased only after EBV seroconversion. These findings cannot be explained by any known risk factor for MS and suggest EBV is a leading cause of MS, end quote. That comes from Bjornovic Science Journal. This is an interesting study and hard to understand unless we assume that certain individuals have genetic weaknesses for autoimmune activation post-EBV infection. If 95% of Americans get EBV during their life and only a small subset end up with multiple sclerosis, then there is further work to be done to figure out which group and why that group subset is getting disease. All right, switching gears to newsletter number eight. The free thoughts. Quote, if you are distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but to your estimate of it. And this, you have the power to revoke at any moment. End quote. Marcus Aurelius. Love, love, love that statement. Because it truly is our interpretation of events that dictate how we perceive them, live with them, feel about them, and suffer from them. If you want more about this topic, listen to podcast um, with David Rakel. I think it was number six. Uh, the link is in the Apple News, I'm mean, excuse me, Apple Podcast link or in the uh, audio book link or Amazon link. You can find those in the newsletter. Okay. It's allergy season. In section one, we're going to talk here about allergy season in school. What's your plan? Spring is on the horizon for many of us in the southern United States. For the parents of allergy-suffering kids, this is the time for checkups, medicines, and countless forms required for school. I know, what a pain, but it is what it is. 
The goal for parents, providers, and educators is to limit missed and unproductive school days due to asthma and allergies and to get the most out of the learning environment for all children. We can work together to make sure allergic children stay healthy. To suffer from congestion and wheeze will limit adversely one's focus and ability to attend the classroom event. The downstream effects will be lost productivity that compounds over time, slowing the education process that leads to a successful outcome. Prevention of disease and physiologic dysfunction remains the key to successful and healthy life. For allergy sufferers, quality nutrition, desensitization, therapy, and trigger avoidance are the mainstays of therapy. Let's look at some tips to consider this spring. Number one, start all medicine, supplements, and treatments before the season of children's triggers start. Compliance is the key to success especially when it comes to asthma medicines. The prevention-based medicines, not albuterol, are the keys to avoiding flares and missed days of school for the child and work for the parent. Inhaled meter-dose corticosteroids used with a spacer device are the most critical aspect of the medical fight against lung inflammation that causes lung tube constriction, wheezing, and missed days of school that occur with asthma. Always use medicines as directed, especially including those spacers for the inhalers. These procedures are critical to the success of the medicine reaching the distal lung and not being stuck in your mouth, esophagus, or uh, upper lung tissue. You want it to get far down into the lung, so use the spacers. Number two, help your child know what they react to and teach them to avoid these triggers. Think of a glass of water as a glass of triggers. If it is overflowing, you are sick. Therefore, if you eliminate some of the water via trigger avoidance and quality nutrition, then you can exercise or even catch a viral cold and still avoid an overflow state, meaning less congestion and asthma symptoms. For example, use dust covers on mattresses and pillows while also dusting carefully in all high-use spaces. The dust allergy sufferers will benefit tremendously from these actions. If you want more on allergy avoidance, I have a couple links in the newsletter, especially to allergychoices.com company that has a lot of great information on their website. Number three, if your child is taking sublingual allergy prevention drops or receives subcutaneous allergy injections, then make sure they're taking them as directed, which is usually three times a day for sublingual immune therapy as per your allergist for the shots. These therapies retrain the immune system to not overreact to common environmental triggers. The company Allergy Choices that I just spoke of is in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and they provide an excellent service for those looking to start slit therapy. Slit therapy is nicer because you can do it at home. It's easy. You just put it under your tongue. You don't have to waste time going to the office, coming to our office, and getting shots. Again, I am highly interested in you having the easiest and most beautiful life you can. Sublingual immune therapy, to me, makes more sense. It is a large part of the allergen avoidance pathway for our patients in our clinic. Number four, discuss your child's allergy and asthma triggers with his or her teacher in order to have an avoidance plan for the coming year. Visit the classroom and attempt to identify known triggers and have them eliminated if possible. Mold, dust, foods, etc. Look for them. It is never too late to do this. Consider getting a Propeller Health Inhaler Tracker for disease learning and mitigation. It's a GPS little device that attaches to your albuterol inhaler and when you use your inhaler, it gives you clues as to where you were and what's going on when you're using that. Sort of geolocate what's going on. Is it that you're at grandma's house and there's smoke there all the time or a cat or a dog? This location honing may help us eliminate potential hotspots for triggers. 
These types of devices should be the future of medicine for all asthmatic patients. Why they are not now is unfortunately purely an issue of money. Five, if a child has a food allergy, there is a critical education need for the school and cafeteria employees to be aware of the food allergen triggers. Have your child meet with a staff as, so as to discuss and encourage a sense of comfort in asking questions when or he, she is in the food line. Make sure that your child understands the risk of food trading. Many anaphylactic events occur because an uns unsuspected food is traded from one child to another. Controlling the total allergy burden in the body through mitigation measures can help reduce a food-induced negative accidental outcome. Emergency plans and preparation are the key to survival for food allergies and asthma as well, or the combination. Have a prevention and treatment meeting with a nurse, teacher, child, coach, staff, anyone that you think is a part of your child's day. Six, as always, avoid processed foods while consuming an anti-inflammatory diet. This is the key to reducing the inflammation in the body that worsens all disease. If you listen to the recent podcast with Dr. Rick Johnson, you gained a bolus of knowledge about fructose and sugar consumption. The simple answer is that the excessive fructose ingestion of soda, sweet tea, juice, Kool-Aid, soda, sugared milks, all of these things, drives survival reactions that promote inflammation. This inflammation will show up in your disease as worsening congestion, wheezing, and the alike. Daily, it all starts in the gut. Diet is the key. Dramatically increase your consumption of colored vegetables and fruits for the micronutrients that are loaded with. Green leafy vegetables and berries are the highest on the list of beneficial foods. Lots of fiber promotes healthy bacteria that dampen the immune system and enhance healing. The inherent antioxidants in the plant foods drive reduced inflammatory responses systemically. Reduce animal protein intake, which can overstimulate the immune system and keep the body inflamed. Always choose grass-fed and hormone-free meats the way they were intended to be consumed. When you ingest beef that is finished with corn, you cause more inflammation to your gut and worsen your allergies. Avoid dairy where possible, as many allergy sufferers respond poorly to dairy intake. Consider reducing high histamine-laden foods that provide a fuel source for an allergic reaction. Aged and fermented foods are higher in histamine. Older and leftover foods are also higher in histamine. Aged cheeses, cured meats, shellfish can be especially troublesome for allergy sufferers. The simple answer here is the fresh is best. There's a link to histamine food education in the newsletter. Consuming omega-3 fats as fish oil or small oily fish in your diet is a good way to reduce the eicosanoid inflammatory overload in allergies. Americans are flooded with omega-6 fats that are pro-inflammatory while we are insufficient in the beneficial omega-3 fats based on historical norms. Immunologically, the key here is to avoid innate and adaptive immune overactivation by avoiding large volumes of refined sugar, flour, and saturated omega-6 fats, otherwise known as processed foods. Number seven, look into herbal supplements like dehist, D-H-I-S-T, or pure TH2 modulator, or Zyflamend, spelled Z-Y-F-L-A-M-M-E-N-D, for allergy immune reduction. Only use with the guidance of your provider, but these can be very useful adjunctive therapies. Talk to your provider about the benefits of high-quality probiotic like Claire Labs, Therabiotic for gut health, vitamin D and zinc sufficiency for very important immune health. It is worth testing these micronutrient levels and supplementing as needed. I really see great responses to immune health with better macro and micronutrient sufficiency. A very useful therapy 
for allergic rhinitis is nasal washing. Use a neti pot for sinus rinses with sterile water to clear out allergens twice daily. Consider a shower to wash off pollen after being outdoors for a while. And finally, I am a huge fan of sublingual immune therapy, which has proven very, very helpful for our children that have eczema, asthma, and recurrent ear infections. These disorders often have underlying allergic causes. I have been using sublingual immune therapy in my clinic for over a decade. We know that treating children for specific allergies, including dust mites, pollen, and food, can significantly benefit conditions such as asthma, eczema, and allergic arthritis. Section 2. Vitamin D is arguably the most important micronutrient. It is one of the four fat-soluble vitamins and has, been and has the added benefit of being synthesized in our skin via the sun's UVB rays. I think that it is critically associated with allergic rhinitis and atopic disease as well. We love sunny days, and the effect of the sun has on our psyche and feelings of wellness. For centuries, humans have lived by the sun, whether by regulating our sleep cycle or producing our natural foods. Yet, recently, we have shunned the sun's direct effects on our body by avoiding it or overusing sun-blocking agents because of the fear of skin cancer. True to our nature, we choose to be extremists in the ways of dealing with this problem. The campaign has helped produce a generation of vitamin D-deficient Americans. In the recent past, the medical community believed that vitamin D simply controlled calcium and phosphorus metabolism and bone health. But, not to be true, recent evidence has shown that the tip of the iceberg only Vitamin D stimulates the immune system from birth and plays a role in natural immune system function. Inadequate levels of vitamin D are being linked to all kinds of things, including autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, also with cancers, and with COVID-19. Vitamin D is also known to be involved in the function of over 80 nuclear genes and the many aspects of cellular function. If you want to read more about vitamin D, there's a link in the newsletter to a full article on this. Section three is just a little discussion on that propeller health device. If you have a child with asthma or you are a parent with asthma, I highly encourage you to go to the newsletter and click the link to see the propeller health device. It can really help you adjudicate better decision-making processes around how to avoid your symptoms if you're being triggered in different environments. All right, folks, that's the wrap up of volume 12 issues, letters four, six, and eight. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice, treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Thanks and have a great day.